Well, let me start a little bit on the lighter side and just uh, kind of draw an analogy for us. I don't know if you've noticed how um, repetition can, not repetition of any kind, but repetition of some sorts um, has kind of a soothing, um, relaxing effect on us. Like my parents tell me that one of the only ways they could get me to go to sleep as a baby is they would put me in the car and they'd turn on the engine and drive. Now, um, that's true. Um, of course, back then, gas was like 15 cents a gallon, so you could do that. Um, but the droning of the engine and, the, um, and just the motion of the car, it put me, put me right to sleep. And there weren't, back then, we didn't wear seat belts or anything. I think they just threw me in the back seat. Uh, they can't do that anymore. You'd go to jail for that. But, um, but it just had that, the, you know, it's like, it's like the rocking motion. And um, I don't know if you've noticed uh, when you hold a baby, if you hold a baby and you sit down, not every baby's like this, but a lot of them are. If you sit down is the moment that the baby starts to scream. And if you stand up and you start like, you know, watch a mom jiggler on a hip, all of a sudden the baby's content. It's like... Somehow that rhythmic motion of rocking just puts a person back to sleep. One of the favorite things my wife and I like to do when we go out to the coast is we, uh, we let, leave some of the windows open or the door cracked because we love to hear the pounding of the surf. And it's just relaxing just to hear the boom, boom. It's just something to go to sleep to. I love it. It has such a soothing effect. Anybody remember the, uh, the beds in hotels that had magic fingers? <laughs> See, there's only a few people who laughed, which means <laughs> I'm dating myself. You know, you stick a quarter in and go, and it's supposed to make you feel relaxed. Now, for maybe most people, it did make them feel relaxed. It freaked me out, the whole idea of magic fingers. If you never had that experience, then you probably never will because I don't think they exist anymore. But it's just the whole point. It's like, you know, you notice how just kind of the rhythm, it's like hypnotic, it's like hypnosis. They have that, you know, thing, and they back and forth. Well, there's something to be said for that in a good way. But I want to say that there's a way in which we can fall asleep spiritually through the constant rhythms and rocking of life. That is our life patterns. And what I mean by that is this. Like most of our days are fairly routine. There might be some variance. Uh, we'll go on vacation or somebody stops by. But for the most part, it's all the same. We get up. Alarm goes off first. Uh, maybe have some breakfast, some go without, some eat, um, drive off to work, and then you eat again, lunch probably, some do, some don't. Then you go to work again, and then you come home and fix dinner and you know, hang out with your family or your friends or your wife, and, and then uh, maybe watch a show and read and then go to sleep. And at 6.30, and it starts all over again, right? You get up, you go to work, you eat, come home, spend time with family, maybe watch a show, read, and then go to sleep, whatever your routine is. But it's kind of the same. It's just like the constant motion of life. And then you hit the weekend, and chances are you kind of have similar activities too. Wake up on Saturday, maybe you go for a run, mow the lawn, um, take care of a few chores that you didn't do during the week. Uh, maybe you have some friends over for a barbecue, go to sleep, wake up the next morning, come to church like you are now. And it's just, I realize there's variations within different families, but you have your own little rhythm of life. And, and it's just kind of a rocking rhythm. And here's what can happen if we're not careful if we're not vigilant, if we're not watchful, is that kind of day-to-day -day life pattern can easily become for us the basis of belief as to what the future holds. What I mean by that is that we can very easily, based upon like the daily experience of life, as well as the collective experiences of others, build a faith on what's possible or what's ultimately real.
so that things like divine judgment um, are kind of like white noise because they stand outside of the regular rhythm and pattern of our daily life and the collective experiences of others. Well, it doesn't fit into my daily experience, my daily pattern and others around me. And so, therefore, it's not real, at least not on any like essential belief level. It's maybe a theoretical possibility out there, but it's not something that you actually believe to be real. And that, that happens. It puts people to sleep, just becomes spiritually dull. And yet God has provided some wake-up calls to us, hasn't he? I don't think a single one of us would have ever believed as we woke up um, on September 11th that we would watch two skyscrapers tumble to the ground. Maybe on a theoretical level we knew it could happen in terms of physics, but I don't think we really believed it would happen. And when we saw it, all of a sudden we're just like stunned, like, wow, that, that can happen. Um, I don't think any one of us um, would have woken up on, on the morning of December 26, 2004, to hear about what they call a mega thrust earthquake in the Indian Ocean floor that would send waves that are 100 feet tall over civilization, killing almost a quarter of a million people. That was a, that's outside our experience. Just daily life, doing your stuff. It's kind of like, oh, that doesn't really happen. I mean, it happens theoretically, but it doesn't figure into your life pattern, so it doesn't have any effect. But it happened. And we come to a topic of... Ezekiel, which is very, very important for us to wrap not just our heads around, but our heart around. And that is the whole concept of, of judgment. A very real truth that is woven into the scriptures from beginning all the way to end. In every single book, it's addressed with the possible exception of the Song of Solomon. And I think, I believe that the people of Israel before Ezekiel's day had kind of gone to sleep, right? They had been lulled to sleep by the pattern of life. And the whole concept of judgment was therefore white noise. I say that because, and here I'm going to rewind history a little bit, because you can't make sense of it without doing this. So stay with me here. All the way back at the beginning, in the first five books of Moses, when, you know, God meets with his people Israel at Mount Sinai, and he establishes a covenant with them. It's like, you know, marriage. It's like monogamous. And the first, if you will, stipulation of that covenant was, thou shalt have no other gods before you. That is, you're not supposed to worship anybody but me. Um, God was calling his people to love him and trust him with everything. And out of that love and trust to obey. He never called for obedience as, as generic and heartless conformity to a principle. It's like, no, you love me, you trust me, and as you do, I will take care of you, I will provide for you, I will guide you, but if you don't love me, don't trust me, then you're going to fail and you're going to worship other things. And you back up. God provides some very, very strong stipulations or sanctions if they fail, right? Here's just two examples. This, again, this is Moses, the Lord through Moses. The Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over you, to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. So what's going to happen if, if this covenant fails, if you cheat on the Lord? He says, you are going to be taken into another nation. You are going to become exiles. You're going to be banished from the land, the land of promise, um, the land of blessing, the place where God would dwell with his people. You're, I'm going to kick you out. It's kind of like Eden, you know, kick you out. So... That was part of the sanction. I'm, I'm going to remove you from the land. 
And then he, he elaborates a little bit more in verse 49. says, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. You know, the vulnerable elderly and the vulnerable young, they won't care. So that's going to happen if you violate my covenant, if you fail to trust me, love me, and follow me, and worship me only. Well, out of the, right out of the gate, we know the history, and if you don't know it, let me just summarize it for you. There's failure upon failure upon failure upon failure, over and over again. Now, let me just point out another significant thing, I believe, that when Moses um, spoke to the people of Israel after the Exodus, that was probably around the 15th century BC, depending on whether you take the earlier or later date, and I'm persuaded by the earlier. Either way, the point's kind of the same. So let's just say 15th century BC, that's when these words are delivered. The people would fail and fail and fail, and centuries would go by. 14th century, 13th century, 12th century, 11th century BC, 1000 BC, 900 BC, 800 BC, 700 BC. And the prophets kept speaking about this judgment that's coming because of failure. But the people chose not to believe. And I have to believe that part of it was they, in their life motion, it had been hundreds of years, nothing had happened, so therefore it's not a reality. They had fallen asleep, despite the fact that Isaiah and the other prophets said, it's coming. By the time you get to Ezekiel, Almost nine centuries have passed. And the people didn't believe the message that, you know what, the hammer is going to fall at some point. Like, at some point, God's going to make good on his, his word. And as a side note, if you wonder or ask the question, well, why did he take so long, 900 years or so, to actually fulfill his word of judgment? Well, it's because the Lord is slow to anger. Like, it's just a miracle of divine patience that he didn't deal with it sooner, but he waits. That's the, that's the way the scripture reveals the Lord. He's, he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and forgiveness. So nine centuries, roughly, go by, and then Ezekiel happens. And in the first three verses, we are, um, we are brought face-to-face with the truth that the hammer is already falling, that the word of the Lord, the judgment, is already here. What they thought could never happen all of a sudden was upon them. So we read, in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles. He's not in the land anymore. Like he's by the Kabar River over in Babylon. The heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. And on the fifth day of the month, then parenthesis, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kabar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. Now he's already in exile. Like the hammer is already falling. Judgment's already happening. It's here. The time, the date has, has arrived after nine centuries. And this opening little paragraph, it anchors these events in world history. Like these are datable events. That is, Jehoiakim, the king, the Jewish king, um, was taken to Babylon. He was deported. He was exiled. And right around the year 9, or excuse me, 598, 598, 597. 
And he had been there for five years when he received this word. Now, let me just branch out a bit and say that there were a series of deportations. The first wave was in 605 when some young men that we probably know the names of, named Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were, they were deported, ended up in the capital city of Babylon. The second wave was this wave, where the king was taken to Babylon along with probably Ezekiel and some others, and they were living by the Kebar River. And then a third deportation was going to happen that was going to be particularly painful. Something of near apocalyptic um, significance. That is a day, a year, 586, when another deportation would happen, and then the temple would be destroyed, decimated, completely wiped out, and Jerusalem raised to the ground. To this day, I don't know if you know this, but to this day, the Jewish people still remember that dark moment. It's called Tisha B'Av. They remember when the temple fell. It was, in a word, an apocalyptic event of judgment. From this point, it's still future. The moment he receives word, the temple's still standing, and so is Jerusalem. So this is the time in which this prophet is called to minister, like a time of tremendous upheaval and change, a time of spiritual implosion, a, play, a time in which the very centers of Jewish um, uh, institutional worship are going to be destroyed. It's maybe a little bit of how we might feel in our time of just things coming apart, uncertain, um, changes. And this is the time that he ministers. And I think we can learn something from his call. Just verse 3 in particular. We can learn something from the path of his call, um, the message of his call, and finally the power behind the ability to live this out. The first one has to do with, like, the path. What we find um, in, these, in verse 3 is we find a man who, who submits to God despite his own internal conflict and then also external conflict. You notice there's a little detail in verse 3 that identifies who Ezekiel is. He's not just the son of Boozy. It sounds like Bougie or Boozer, doesn't it? It says that he was a priest. Ezekiel was a priest, which means prior to him being banished from the land, he used to be in the temple with other priests. You know, um, celebrating and worshiping in the Lord in the, in the, in the, in the temple that Solomon had built um, some three, four centuries earlier, like the golden age of Israel. So he was in the temple constantly, which tells me that he would have loved and had a deep affection for the temple. And that's not a stretch. You, you read how important the temple is to the Jewish people, like um, in the Psalms. Think of it. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. This is Psalm 27. That I may live in the house, that I may dwell in the house, temple, of the Lord forever, or all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. I just, there's such a passion. One thing I ask for, I just want to live in the temple with the Lord. That's, that's the heart and the passion of this place, the center of Jewish worship and the place where God made his presence known. Or Psalm 84, where it says, my, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts. Courts of the Lord, the courts of what? The courts of the temple. It's like, it's that important. You make your pilgrimage through the years of just, we can't wait to go and sing the Psalms of Ascent as we go up to worship Yahweh at his temple in Jerusalem like the, like the gem. 
right? That there's, that's how he would have felt. That's how a Jewish person would feel about the temple. And the irony is, this priest who served in the temple is now called to be a prophet to speak against it. You see? For example, and it's going to occupy a lot of his prophetic oracles of, of the dest- coming destruction of the temple because they were cheating on God and at the same time worshiping at the temple. That's a problem. So he's going to destroy the symbol of his presence because of their spiritual idolatry. He says, say to the house of Israel, this is chapter 24, verse 21 of Ezekiel, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes, and the yearning of your soul. You see how important? Delight, pride, power, yearning, and your sons and your daughters whom you left behind shall fall by the sword. These words, and I, I, I can't think of a, like a, a good analogy in terms of our American culture. Like, what do we consider something so sacred that if it was destroyed, it would just like destroy our heart? White House? I don't think that equates. Um, Statue of Liberty? Uh, Lincoln Memorial? It would, if it was decimated, would our heart like lose all sense of hope. I don't think there's anything that compares. But here he's having to deliver a message from the Lord saying, I am going to destroy my temple because you've been cheating on me. And he who loved the temple is having to deliver this message and not just destroy the temple, but your people, and this is the dark part, your people are going to fall by the sword. This is going to be a holocaust of, of sorts. And it happened in 586. So what he was doing, because he delivered the message, is he was submitting himself to God and doing something he naturally would have disliked. He didn't want to give that message, but he had to. He was called. And it seems to me there's something similar for us. Like, we're not going to be Old Testament prophets. We're not. That time has come and went, and there's not going to be any more New Testament apostles who spoke, or excuse me, who wrote authoritatively. Nevertheless, however, we are called to submit to the Lord, to the word of the Lord, and walk where he wants us to walk. That means walking and living in ways that we may not like. He didn't want to deliver this message, but he did deliver the message. The the Christian life, submitted to the Lord, is oftentimes tough. It takes you down paths you don't necessarily want or like to go. Jesus did the same thing. We've touched on this a couple weeks ago. Just to say that, you know, he said, let this cup pass from me. Let the crucifixion pass from me. Nevertheless, going against what he wanted or liked... He submitted himself to the will of the Father, and he, 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 he went up that tree, and he bled out for us. It wasn't something he liked to do, but he submitted to it. The application is, is this, is that as we come to know God's word and how we would have us live, live by faith, there are times where he's going to tell us to do something that we don't necessarily like. So, a couple examples, maybe. It's not really hard to ask forgiveness from someone you like or love, but to ask forgiveness 
genuine forgiveness from someone who is arrogant that you don't like, that is really hard. Like, to give yourself, to, you know, to, to walk and say, listen, i got to talk to you, and knowing in your heart, I don't like this guy, and to say, I offended you in what I said, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? In that moment, it's not about what you like. It's about who you follow, right? Loving people. Sometimes it's easy when the people are kind. (laughs) But we all come across people who aren't kind, who are mean, um, who are jealous, who love to take jabs at us. You know, and I, like you, have worked with people that I didn't like. I had this guy I worked with first year out of college. His name was Kevin. I could tell he did roids, you know. He was just huge. And um, he's puffy. And he was always taking jabs at me. And even the guys around me were like, dude, that guy does not like you. <laughs> just don't, don't meet him at night, you know. And I found out he didn't like me because we were in line for the same job. And so he's just taking every chance to just show his disdain for me. In those moments, I had a choice to make. Did I want to be kind to him? Oh, no, I didn't. Did I like him? No. But in that moment, when we're supposed to love our enemies as Jesus commanded us to do, it's not about what I like. It's about who I follow. And we're all confronted by things all the time where you are faced by something you don't necessarily like, Ezekiel didn't like to deliver a message against something that he loved. But at the end of the day, it's not who he likes or what he wants. It's, it's about who he follows, and he submits himself to the Lord. And that, to me, is a, is a tremendous word for our time. There's a lot of things we're not going to like. But do we trust the Lord enough to follow him even when we don't want to? That's the question. Great example. The second thing from verse 3 that I take away from this is the message itself. That is, it had two parts to it. There was parts of it that are horrible, horrible news, like hearing that you have cancer. And then there is wonderful news, both together. Verse 3, it says, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. I love the way it says it. Like the word came to Ezekiel, came from some other place. It came from heaven. It came from the Lord. That means he, did, he wasn't the author of it. He wasn't the originator of it. He was simply the messenger of it. He did not have the rights or the liberties to change it, to amend it, or to soften it. Make it a little more palatable for the people, so I'm going to soften it up. That's not it. The word came to him, and he was to deliver as received this message to the people. And the message is strong, and it is at points really dark. Like, so the book is 48 chapters long. The first 39 of those chapters are all taken up with the subject of calling people out, of, out for their sin and, and, and the judgment to follow. 39 chapters. 24 focus on the sin of the people of Israel and their adultery, their spiritual adultery. And beginning in chapter 25, there's a whole bunch of oracles of judgment for the nations around. So there's a lot of of judgment in this book. 
And which is why we're only spending eight, eight weeks in it, because I feel like if we went through chapter by chapter by chapter, there'd be one person at the church after, <laughs> after 48. It wasn't meant to be preached that way. We're taking more of a thematic approach. But some of the chapters are so descriptive, so graphic, and so vivid that some of the ancient rabbis told their young students, you can't read this until you turn 30. You read chapter 16 and chapter 23. Don't do it now. I know some of you are tempted. You read chapter 16 and 23 offline, and don't do it with little kids around, and you'll be appalled. It is sexually explicit about adultery, but it's sexually explicit because he wants us, God wants us to understand just how deeply heinous it is from his perspective. Not to hurt us, but to wake us up. Like, this isn't something you want to do. So there's, there's bad news. It's horrible news. The temple is going to be destroyed. Jerusalem is going to be raised to the ground. People are going to die. It's going to be a, a holocaust of sorts. God's saying, I'm bringing this down. This is what happens after nine centuries of betrayal. The hammer finally falls. But God never leaves us without hope. He doesn't leave us without hope here, here either. Woven throughout these chapters, you have these oracles, these prophecies of the fact that the Lord is going to do an amazing work and change people's hearts. He's going to give them a new heart. He's going to put his spirit in them so they'll want to love the Lord. They'll want to trust the Lord. They will want to obey the Lord. You know, that leads us right into the new covenant in Jesus. There are visions of death coming to life, the valley of dry bones and bones connecting to bones and sinew and flesh, saying God is going to bring life out of death. That brings us right to the New Testament and the resurrection. The, 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 the book is in a long valley of darkness, but at the very end, its final chapters, is a glorious vision of what God is going to do in the rebuilding of his temple for his people, which I think, and we'll get to it later, is a picture of the new creation. So it, it, it has some really deep, dark parts that are intended for our good to wake us up, and it has some glorious high points that says God is a God of hope, and he's going to take you somewhere. And the whole point of the book is to get you to wake up and go, I believe, and I repent, and I want forgiveness. So, you have, But you have to have those two sides, that bad news and good news. And it seems to me that is a, another good word for us. Again, we're not Old Testament prophets, but Jesus has entrusted to us a message. And the message has those same two parts that can be only understood with each other. And the tendency for us is to Press the good part, but not the negative part. To say things like, Jesus loves you. He has a plan for your life. And he died on a cross for you. That's great. And it's true. But we also have to get down to, like, why did he have to die? Did he die just so I could maybe have a little bit happier marriage? Did he die just so I could be a little bit more successful? I mean... Those things may happen. Jesus does change your life and it affects everything. But no, he didn't die on the cross to give you a little bit better marriage. He died on the cross to save you from the wrath to come. And nobody wants to hear that. And I'm willing to guess at least one person in either the last service or this service is going to go, I'm not coming back to that church because they talk about judgment. It's here. 
It's like saying that you don't have cancer when you do. It's, it's completely ludicrous. It's in the Bible all the way through. There is a, a dark side. There is bad news. And we have to be willing to communicate it and as tactfully, as carefully, and as prayerfully as possible, not to beat someone over the head with judgment and without a judgmental spirit or a spirit of condemnation. Listen, if the train's going to come off the tracks, we've got to tell the people that it's going to come off the tracks. If a day is on, marked in history in which people are going to be judged, and we're told that it is, you know, they will be judged, each one of them according to what they have done, Revelation chapter 20. It's going to happen. And just because your daily pattern of life doesn't have that in it as a reality doesn't mean it's not going to happen. The same way that the buildings came down and the ocean floor lifted up. But then there's that gloriously awesome news, which is, so if that's what sin deserves, me cheating on the Lord, and you're telling me that God himself, this is the gospel, part of our message that we have to like get out, is that the same God who pours out wrath is the same God who poured out wrath on himself so we could go free. Like so... In a sense, you could say all of the judgments that are repeated and repeated and repeated through these 39 chapters, in effect, are poured out on the one instead of the many. That's the, the beauty and the wonder of the cross is God judges God so we can go free. That's the gospel. God did what we couldn't do for ourselves, and what he asks of us is to trust it, to embrace it, and then to follow Jesus. That's it. That is the wonderful good news God did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He's the one who put himself under his own judgment, which is... Nothing less than incomprehensible, that that's the kind of God we serve. But both parts need to be their church. We can't ignore the one for the sake of the other because it's more palatable. If people don't know what they're being saved from, they won't be saved too. Third, so if the, the first part is just, hey, man, we're, we're, we're supposed to not walk in a manner that we like, but walk in a manner that we follow the Lord. If we were to maintain the integrity of this message that, that God delivered to Ezekiel and now delivers to us of the gospel with a judgment background, then the last piece and the shortest piece, just you know, is um, how do you do this, right? I mean, you expect Ezekiel just to because this is going to be a hard road for him. Not only is he, you know, at odds with his, his own likes and desires. I mean, his message is actually going to probably was going to cause all kinds of problems with his social relationships. People aren't going to like him. They're going to na- they na- call him an anti-patriotic um, person. And people would die in history for speaking negatively of the temple. But that's what he has to do. So how does he get there? How do, how do you do this? And I love the last phrase. This, this is all in one verse. He says, and the hand of the Lord, the hand of Yahweh, was upon him there. The hand, the strength, the power of Yahweh was right there with him, going before him and after him, with him, um, protecting him, guarding him, enabling him. It's like, and that has always been and should always be our core conviction as we make it through, as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, is that I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Just know that the Lord is with you on this road, and someday we are going to see all of those who are in Christ Jesus, who have no longer to fear condemnation because we're in him, 
Like the day for us, when that day comes, is not going to be a day of, of dark despair. It's going to be a day of euphoric joy as we stare at the face of God in the person of, of Jesus Christ. But until that day, church, we have to stay awake. We have to keep our eyes open and stay vigilant, as Jesus said. Be sober-minded. Don't be caught sleeping when he comes back. Don't get lulled by the daily pattern of life or the collective pattern of those around you that preclude this day as a reality. Because according to the scripture, the day will come, and you want to be wide awake when it does. I mean, the, the apostle Peter in his second letter, he addressed the church and said, there are some saying that Jesus won't come back because it's been too long. They, they mis, mistook the delay for he's not coming. And you know what they said? Things will continue as they always have. People are just going to think it's just going to continue on, the continued pattern of life. But a day for the Lord is like a thousand years, or a thousand years is like a day for the Lord. So don't lose your watchfulness and vigilance. And if you're asleep, wake up, because the day will come. And let me just say this. I did this first service. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord, maybe this message bounced off you like steel. You're like, I don't care. Or maybe you slept through it. <laughs> That's fine. I'm not talking to you. But if you're here and you feel the weight, you're like, I, I sense that God is doing something in me. Like, I don't want to be on the wrong side, and I want to be awake. Today is your day to reach out in faith and say, I want to know Christ, and I want to embrace him as my Savior and my salvation. Don't leave here without praying to him. I mean, the, 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 the means of salvation is, is simply confess the Lord with your mouth and believe in him in your heart, and you shall be saved. But don't leave here without that. That weight that you're feeling, if, if that's you, that's from God. He's working in your life right now, which is pretty darn exciting. So don't let it pass you by. Respond to it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your words. I pray that your spirit would take them, drive them deep into all of our hearts. Help us to stay awake and be reminded each day that there is a day coming, a day we live for, a day we look for, a day of blessed hope and glorious appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.